Hi, you're listening to episode three of No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. Today, David Perry is here. He's vice president and senior analyst at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. David is a trusted source on Canadian defense and procurement policy. He's worked for or partnered with institutes like McDonnell Laurier, the Conference of Defense Associations, and the Canadian Naval Review. Currently, he's an adjunct professor at the Centre for Military and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary and a research fellow at the Centre for the Study of Security and Development at Dalhousie. I'm told he also has his own podcast on the Canadian Global Affairs Institute podcast network called Defence Deconstructed, which I'll link to in the description of this episode, so be sure to check that out as well. David joins me virtually today to discuss security and defense. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So David, with the COVID pandemic, with the protests on race relations all consuming the television screens and the front pages, most of the other news kind of disappears, of course, until uh, there was the decision on the UN Security Council seat in Canada's failed bid to achieve that. So I want to put that in the context of defense issues and foreign policy issues, because a lot of people are saying that that was our only foreign policy bid. We really put all our eggs in that basket, and now we're not there. So what does that mean? Yeah, I I think it's kind of, um, I would put it almost with a piece with uh, the front half of the Trudeau government. They're kind of effectively their only foreign policy revolved around the NAPTA renegotiations. Um, And that was, I think, undertaken for all the right reasons. But I guess it's one, it's reflective of the fact that we got to be able to do more than one thing at once. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. a big world. We have lots of interests and and many different um, interests for Canada to pursue and advance in the world and values to promote in different ways if we want to do that as well. Um, but this, the UN effort, like the NAFTA effort before it, I think just seemed to have consumed so much of the oxygen and so much of the bandwidth amongst the, the folks in this country that needs to do foreign policy. Um, so it's unfortunate that we lost, but I don't think it was all that surprising. What, what difference does it make at this point? The, the Security Council, you, you know, the China, Russia, U.S. vetoes, does it matter? Would we have really made a difference? Um, I, I don't know because I'm just not clear about what we had intended to do if we won. Um, you know, the, <laughs> th- that platform at the United Nations Security Council is an important one if you can get a seat there. Um, I, I guess it just, I was never clear about what the objective was in winning the seat. I mean, it seemed to me to be the, the largest driving factor uh, was a desire to differentiate from the previous government, uh, which had also failed. Um, so now that we've got two consecutive failures to win a seat, I think we've got to reassess one, what are chances of actually winning this particular election, which is effectively what it is, and how much of uh, what happened as a result of kind of the election factors, about how mm-hmm. you win the votes there and, and what you need to do to, to cross that threshold. And then the other component of it would, I think, hopefully be some reflection about, you know, the, the kind of the implicit tie-in with what it means for how uh, our international policy is viewed externally compared to how we view it ourselves. And I think exactly. We, we seem to have this... Um, sense that we're much more muscular and much more present and much more important than we are. I mean, when you look at Norway, that has more boots on the ground for peacekeeping than we do, and right. that's part of our whole, quote, identity, uh, right. there's something wrong here. Well, and, and it's and also keeping in mind that they're much smaller countries, too. Exactly. But I think that's really the, uh, we got, I would hope that this should uh, create some self-reflection about 
uh, how we're doing in terms of our international policy about actually achieving and advancing Canadian national interests and, re and less about um, perception either of ourselves or, or kind of this constant Canadian fixation of obsessing over how other people view us and whether or not we're perceived to be fighting in the right weight class. It's, um, having lived in the United States, I always get that sense that somehow, you know, when you're the smaller neighbor, not geographically, but population-wise and in terms of clout, you know, we're always comparing ourselves to the U.S. We're so much better. Our values are so much truer. We're not the bullies. Like, we, we define ourselves by what we're not as opposed to defining ourselves by what we are. Uh, I oh, guess absolutely. it's figuring out what that, what it is that we're supposed to be. What is it that, as you say, that we're trying to achieve? What should we be doing? What should we be trying to achieve? Right. And I think on the values uh, bit, certainly the public-facing communications that came out of our diplomatic establishment, uh, we're trying to extol that Canada should be, we should, a vote for Canada should be done because we were inclusive and promote diversity um, and that we were leaders in the COVID response uh, internationally, and there's a third. And there's a 50% women in cabinet, like right. issues that aren't relevant to what uh, a foreign policy is generally described as. Well, I actually, maybe, or you could argue that they are, but I, to me, the bigger thing was um, if you're looking at the votes we needed at the UN Security Council or at the United Nations to get that seat, it's a question of right. one whether or not those issues were ones that would actually make countries vote for us, right. number one. And then number two, um, even if yes, those are the kinds of things that would lead a country um, to select a mem rotating member of the United States, the United Nations Security Council, were those going to be points of differentiation between uh, Canada and the Irish and the Norwegians? And I think it was a stretch to think that that was the case. Uh, can we put this uh, decision now in the, and in the light of where we're still at on the COVID front, um, we look at a trillion dollars worth of debt and a deficit that's going up literally hourly. Uh, do you anticipate that the defense world, the defense department, is going to take a big hit in terms of cuts to try and uh, start the payback system that will inevitably happen? So I guess the way that I would answer that by saying that uh, when a government, whoever that is and whenever that is, uh, wants to start getting our fiscal house in order, and I think that that is inevitable, um, unless somehow magically interest rates and debt carrying costs remain minuscule or forever, some government is going to have an issue with Canada's yep. debt load, even if it isn't in terms of the absolute amounts. But I think, um, and it's important to keep in mind that at least currently, the world is just massively awash in debt right now. Exactly. And in Canada, we have a bit of a unique circumstance, I think, because of our federal structure. It's not just the federal debt, it's also how much debt provinces are carrying. We've already seen um, in the last couple of months, one province make an explicit ask uh, to the, the federal government for help, basically uh, going to the market to, to secure uh, lending. So I think there's going to be a, a relative uh, uh, lending issue potentially of, of how people evaluate Canada's total indebtedness picture compared to other places where they could lend their dollars. And, but the takeaway for me is that whenever it happens that a government wants to start restraining spending, it's inevitable that defense plays some part in that just because it is uh, the single largest light line item that is really adjustable when you get into crunching down on the federal budget math and looking what levers you can pull if you want to reduce overall federal government expenditures. This is always the problem because uh, the procurement system in this country, which I think is so fundamentally broken, it takes us so long to make a decision, it then takes us so long to purchase, and then political 
governments come and go and decisions change. Uh, we seem to be stuck in this rut of buying old equipment, not making a decision on uh, putting us in tune and in line with our NATO partners and, and allies. Where are we on that? I mean, it kind of goes back to that other question about whether we are who we think we are in terms of what we do uh, in the real world and boots on the ground. Uh, ships, planes, um, really dealing with second-rate, third-rate aging equipment. Yeah, and I think it, it ties in exactly to the, the, the question about whether or not defense is liable to be cut and how defense figures into the overall federal fiscal picture. Because I, I would say just kind of as a, as a frame on where we are right now with defense uh, and military procurement especially, um, the, the planes and the ships that you mentioned should have been replaced 20 years ago. Exactly. Uh, we were in the middle, though, at the time of, of uh, digging Canada out from a, the most recent massive debt load. Um, one that was more, much more significant than what happened in uh, after the 2010 period, after we got out from underneath the, uh, the Great Recession. But in the mid nine, early in the mid 90s, we were in serious trouble about whether or not we could actually keep carrying, uh, servicing the debt, and whether or not we could actually keep borrowing money. Um, and for a whole bunch of reasons, we went into a, a period where we had, for about a decade and a half, significant reductions in spending on defense, and particularly acute ones in terms of what we were we were doing in terms of replacing equipment that. Um, given the nature of how long it takes to buy some of these advanced weapon systems, no matter where you are in the world, um, we should have been doing it then, and we didn't. Um, and so here we are, uh, a generation later, still flying and still sailing the same uh, pieces of equipment in some cases. And, and what that's done is it's kind of created this cumulative problem of stacking up demand. Mm -hmm. Where, um, in addition to just being, uh, we should be working on the procurements right now for uh, equipment that's, say, 25 years old. Um, which is, you know, that's kind of like a normal replacement uh, cycle. But we're trying to get supply ships, and we just saw a contract for that recently for ships right. that were retired when they were in their mid 40s. Um, and as someone that's approaching that age window, that's not really <laughs> the prime of uh, your operational life. <laughs> well, I mean, it's such a serious question when you look at the uh, the helicopter crash, the cyclone crash, and and you know, we don't know all of the answers there yet. But I think it's fair to say that there was um, an unfamiliarity with equipment. Maybe we didn't have, you know, the right uh, training up to speed, or maybe the company hadn't delivered. We've got search and rescue planes, um, you know, that's starting to be fixed, but ones that can't get up in the air. And I'm worried, too, when you look at the recent um, snowbird uh, crash, that the first thing they do is kind of, I mean, of course the planes are old. We know they're really, really old. Is it easier just to cut the program than try and fix it? Those are the things that concern me because, I, I, I mean, the snowbirds are about um, Canadians feeling good about themselves and understanding and have some relationship to their military that we don't have in the same way that the Americans or other countries do. Yeah, I mean, so to take those examples that you cited, I think the way that I would frame all of them, as well as a lot of other older fleets that we have, is that uh, Canada has developed, um, a, for good reasons and bad, a reputation as being an excellent operator of far right. too old equipment. <laughs> um, and we've become very good and very adept at doing that. And I think, by and large, put an awful lot of time making sure that there isn't an automatic connection between uh, platform age and safety, because we do focus on the safety, uh, despite other things that happen. Uh, but having an international reputation as an excellent operator of old equipment isn't really a good one. Yeah. 
So do you see any change possible on that? Do you see that there might be some connection now with this uh, failed attempt at the, um, at the UN to have a rethink and say, okay, look, I mean, we, we need to put our money where our mouth is if we're going to be an international player. I think it all depends on what kind of self-assessment and self-reflection uh, happens. If it's of the type that happened after our failed bid in 2010, which and I think too many official circles and too many of the kind of the diplomatic establishment was attributed all to the their perceived ills of the Harper government. Mm -hmm. uh, if we kind of get a knee-jerk reflection that it's, you know, this is all attributable to that some people are saying that the prime minister is a lightweight. I think that's a vast oversimplification and it won't do us any help. If it actually occasions us to actually take a real look at uh, both what we want to do in terms of an actual policy framework or policy outline, but also what we're actually doing. And I think it's the doing that's really the critical mm -hmm. part. You can review policy endlessly, but I think, and a lot of people um, could fault Canada for this, that they're looking at the connection between what we say we're going to do and what then we actually get out and do in the world. Um, so I think a lot of the focus needs to be on the doing and what and how we're doing that whether or not that matches with what we said we're going to do uh, and whether or not uh, other people would perceive us to, to be living up to what we're, we're trying to do, particularly if we want to take a position where we want to um, be cautioning a lot of other people about how they should engage in the world. I think if exactly. you're going to be lecturing other people about their behavior, <laughs> you really need to make sure that your own rhetoric equates with your, your own particular actions. 100% agree with that. Uh, what do you make of us going back into uh, supporting Ukrainian troops, etc.? Um, is, is this a, do we have a, have we contributed enough to make a difference, I guess, is my question. Um, I think to this point, uh, we have in the sense that we've sort of frozen that conflict. Um, I, you know, I, I think getting a fulsome uh, resolution of that is going to be difficult. I think obviously the COVID overlay here yeah. Uh, makes things a lot more problematic. Um, you know, I, I think that that really kind of fundamentally uh, changes the cost-benefit assessment about any of our international contributions. You know, for, for entirely legitimate reasons, like you don't just have the the risk of operational um, uh, stress injuries or, or or operational conflict affecting our troops internationally. You have them dealing with stressed and strained Canadian medical support and supply lines, or or relying on local. Um, health authorities to be able to uh, protect them from a particularly nasty disease. And, you know, in a, in a circumstance where we're doing that, certainly it's a lot longer uh, travel and, and supply line to have our troops there than certainly the Russians um, and the various forms of support they're providing on the other side. Um, so I, I understand the rationale for dialing it back. I get, I'm not really clear about what the next steps are um, in Ukraine writ large, uh, yeah. by no means an expert in the region, but I certainly think that all of the kind of the tribulations of the Trump administration haven't made solving that particular issue any easier by any means. You've twigged something in my mind here talking about um, military operations in the world of COVID. Do you think uh, troops should be sent in to old folks' homes uh, to do the job of people who should have been hired and paid properly to do that job? I mean, if, if that's legitimately the only alternative, um, then certainly if it was my grandparents in one of those facilities, um, I, I would be extraordinarily happy uh, to see those people there. But I mean, fundamentally, absolutely not. I mean, it's really, it is, I think, kind of insane that we have <laughs> troops that are, that is their contribution to COVID. Uh, and it had to rely on the federal armed forces to be in there uh, running care homes. I mean, that's just, 
that is such a complete and systemic failure to have to, and, and it's not just been a short while, and it looks like they're going to be there exactly. for a number of months, potentially through the summer. Um, I, it really just kind of boggles my mind that that is the step to which uh, we had to go, mm. and not just on a temporary basis. I mean, that I think would have been more understandable, but the fact that you've got provinces now that want to have those soldiers uh, and other service personnel there through Labor Day, I mean, that is that just speaks volumes to the degree to which that whole system to me is just broken. Completely broken. This is always the uh, the tension when the Canadian military, I mean, unless they're in an operation like Afghanistan, and then people pay attention because it's on the news at night or they may have a son or a, a niece or a nephew going off to actually uh, go into battle, where most people see their military and because our bases are kind of hidden away. A lot of Canadians don't even see our military, but they see them fighting fires or sandbagging during floods and now in old folks' homes. I, it troubles me, and I, d I don't know if there's an issue there, of we're, we're changing the emphasis of what our military is. It's, it's supposed to, in my mind, be there at the ready for much larger conflicts than just solving domestic crises. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think if you look over the last uh, the last four years and a bit, sort of the pre-COVID period, because everything that happened after, right. after COVID is kind of, I would put in a different uh, bucket. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that you could find very many people at all, even people relatively attentive that had any clue how actually involved we were in the world militarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, at one point we still had several, a couple of thousand troops deployed. Um, very, very little mention was ever made about it. Um, we had very sporadic and infrequent briefings um, about the troops that we had in the Ukraine, the troops that we had in the Middle East, um, and uh, the ones that we sent uh, uh, for the time that we sent them to, to Mali. So uh, I think there was a, a real kind of disconnect between the degree to which there was any emphasis on that international contribution uh, and the sort of the more traditional types of military operations relative to the actual number of, of people that we had out the door, which, you know, Keep in mind, it wasn't huge, uh, but mm -hmm. it certainly, I think, was vastly higher than you would have been led to believe by the way the government went about discussing it. So that's an ongoing problem. How do we make that change? I think it has to sort of come from activity at some point, but how do we get people thinking in our country that we, we need a military, it needs to be funded, it needs to be at the ready, and it's just not there to do backup? You know, other countries have a National Guard or they have other people to call upon in terms of crisis, and, the, and, and they don't bring the military in uh, to back cleanup. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a real tricky, uh, it's a real tricky question. I mean, I think fundamentally it, it's trying to get people to better understand how dependent Canada is on the rest of the world. And I think to go back to something you said before, you know, we, we just have, I think, at times this myopic fixation on what's happening in the U.S. and not even in the entire United States. What hap what's happening at the White House? At the White House, yeah, that's uh, And it. there's so Absolutely. much of the rest of the world that either, um, even if we have a direct um, reliance on something that's happening, say, economically in the United States, it in turn a lot of the times is tied into through trade or, or wider security connections about what's happening on the rest of the globe. And if you don't have people that you can um, send out internationally in different capacities, and not just soldiers, but diplomats too, um, and particularly diplomats, I think we need more of, um, then you don't have as uh, good as assurance that you can advance Canada's interests around the world if you don't have the people to do it, and if you don't send them out to be engaged. 
I want to come full circle here and back to where we started, which is what is our foreign policy? Do we have one? What context are we all operating in? And then I'm going to say one word, and then I'm going to let you talk for a minute. China. Um, I think we have a, a lot of work uh, to do with our relationship with China. Um, I, I think we've had uh, glasses that are tinted with various colors for uh, too long. Uh, and I, I don't think that we have our heads around how fundamental the shift is internationally in terms of China's ascendance and a relative, not just a decline of the United States, but disengagement of the United States, right. which I think too many Canadians are attributing to being a Trump phenomenon. Uh, and at least personally, I don't think that it's just Trump. And Couldn't agree more. Him. Yeah, I think we that may... the decline of the American empire is underway and has been. Right. Um, yeah. and, I, and I don't think that all the toothpaste goes back in that tube. If you, exactly. if you get a change in government, you get a Biden uh, presidency um, with the next election. Uh, and for Canada, that for uh, dating back to the end of the Second World War, has been fundamentally reliant on the American security architecture, American leadership. Um, I think that we should all be doing a massive stock taking right now that COVID, which has been, um, I think, arguably one of the, the most significant international crises since the Second World War, has not only had no American leadership, but effectively no global leadership of any kind. And for a smaller country like Canada, that is a really, I think, fundamental shift. Um, that our primary security partner for the last multiple generations is basically playing mm -hmm little to no international role on this particular worldwide crisis and by choice. And we have to figure out what our relationship is going to be. The, the China, which is a poor, starving, um, staggering giant and, and, and in need of direction and guidance, and we were going to send our private sector people over there to teach and lead and governments, that, that's not who they are. They're, a, they're, a, they're the superpower. Uh, at this point, and we have to decide how we're going to deal with them. And I think Canadians have had a change of heart on a lot of issues through the COVID crisis. Did they lie to us? Did they send us faulty goods? Should we be purchasing their goods? Look what they've done to our canola farmers and our hog producers. And it, it, it's it's endless, the, the battles that we've got. And, and we don't seem to be standing up and speaking aloud about what the issues are, not even to mention Huawei. Yeah, and uh, the Canadian prisoners um, or hostages, uh -huh. I guess, that have been taken. And no, it, no, exactly. It, That's yeah. That the whole dynamic. I think one of the other things to keep in mind for Canada, because uh, we're going to remain inextricably linked to the United States for the foreseeable future. Um, I think also there's not enough recognition in Canada that the the evolving uh, American attitude towards China is one of the few bipart uh, apparently bipartisan issues mm -hmm. that exists in the United States right now. Um, there's too many people that are attributing the kind of current government in the United States' stance towards China and the tougher stance as being a, a Trump phenomenon, a Republican phenomenon. It's an American phenomenon, and it's mm -hmm. reflective of the fact that China, while it is uh, a massive market, and there's economic potential for Canada, given the structure of our economy, and there's the potential for, for increased commerce, uh, they are also on the other side of the uh, security and strategic equation. Uh, from Canada and Canada's traditional allies. And I, I don't know that we've really kind of caught on to that fact right now. It's not just a market opportunity. Uh, it's, a, it's a major strategic challenger to the side of the, the global security equation on, on, that Canada rests on. Uh, and it also potentially directly affects some of Canada's security interests through things like Huawei and, and, and Chinese activity of various different kinds across Canada. 
Do you think we'll get the two Michaels back? I, I, at this point, I don't have a lot of confidence. Um, and, you know, you know, without in any way diminishing their situation, it's also, I think, really kind of remarkable to keep in mind just how much two consular cases, and again, not to diminish those, has, has taken over uh, our relationship with one of the world's superpowers. Right. Um, and we don't, you know, I think there's lots of reasons to say that Canada's judicial system moves slowly, but boy, if there's ever a case uh, with the Huawei CFO to get resolution of whichever way it is going to be resolved as fast yeah. as you could, boy, that would be one to, uh, to try and expedite. Anything else that um, you're seeing on the horizon that none of us are seeing because of, of uh, COVID and, and, as I say, the race relations issues that are front and center? Are we missing something key out there that you see that we don't? Uh, I, I think we're missing lots of things. Um, you, you know, across government, um, I, I, I think that we need to get back to having more legislating. Um, it's kind of ridiculous to have a one-track uh, issue only uh, governance system right now, not to diminish in any way how important COVID is. Yep. Uh, but we've got the entire rest of our, our socioeconomic structure and other policy objectives that we need to be thinking about. Um, there's lots happening on the defense front, or at least lots that should be happening. Uh, and it would be great to see that perspective get broadened out. I mean, I, I think the one thing, and you already touched on it, I think we need to fundamentally get our heads around how we deal with the shifting relationship um, uh, that we've got with, with China. And, and as well, at the same time, it's kind of a triangular situation with how the United States role in the world has shifted and what that means for a country uh, that has had such an inextricable tie uh, with the United States to have them no longer be be interested in providing the the type of global leadership that they have for so long, that's got a, a massive implication for a country that that has really been in the slipstream of American initiatives for decades. So good to talk to you, and and we are all grateful that you were out thinking big thoughts on these issues, talking about them, writing about them, and thanks for talking about them with us. Appreciate it. Great to see you virtually. Look forward to doing it again in person. <laughs> For sure. David Perry, Vice President and Senior Analyst at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute in Ottawa. Great uh, insights from him and a lot of no-nonsense conversation. We'll see you again next time.